This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. In a world confused by contradictory health information, indecipherable research and conflicting interests, it's nice to know you don't have to leave home to get all that in one place. That's right, here at Radiotherapy we'll take simple health facts and look at the nuance the complexity and the implications as Dr. Doolittle undresses in the studio. Hopefully today we'll make some sense from from all of that. Oh, if only we had a webcam. Now, here's a good example. Antibiotics are good for infections. That's a pretty obviously correct statement, but not really. You've got to ask yourself which antibiotics and for what type of infections and what do we mean by good? Now, um, When I get confused like I am right now, I ask for help from an expert. Luckily, we got one in the studio today. His name is Nick Carr. Now, Dr. Carr is a principal practitioner at a very, very busy general practice, at which I attend. He's also a panel member on uh, the Therapeutic Guidelines Committee for Ant for psychotropic use. But he did his master's in antibiotic use, he told me as we were walking into the studio. Oh, near enough. It was close enough. It's a tablet. Um, Now, antibiotic resistance, that is, uh, you know, when uh, antibiotics don't work, is becoming a huge issue. And it's a phenomenon that's going to affect every single one of us at some point in our lives. And Dr. Nick would be into talk us through the issues. Dr. Deep Thought is adjusting his chair right in front of me. He's the sort of psychiatrist we all aspire to be. Now, I have sat in with him seeing patients many, many years ago when he was a psychiatrist and I was a trainee, and i got to say I modelled some of the way I practised on his style. He has this way of making it seem like he's got all the time in the world for you. And in his private life, he's, in his private life, he splits his time between his country estate and cycling across Italy and his brand new car. Jealous! I turn neon green every time I see him in his skin-tight lycras. This morning, Deepy will be chatting with us about gag orders on doctors. Dr. Doolittle is going to be joining us too. Semi-dressed. Regular listeners will know that Doolittle is on senior medical staff at a very large hospital in Melbourne's inner southeast, near a park with a heli pad at Chapel Street. <laughs> <laughs> Not to identify it, it too, starts mate. with an A. <laughs> a hospital. A hospital. Doolittle got his name in the same way that Little John got his. It's the inverse of reality because Doolittle is one of the busiest psychiatrists around. He's just shy about showing off. Um, so shy. He's very, he's a very shy person. Um, he'll be in for special comments and breaking medical news. Now, where else are you going to find four doctors outside of a hospital, a conference, or a luxury car yard? So stick with us for the next hour of radiotherapy. Good morning, Doolittle. Sorry, Doolittle, I went in the wrong direction. We really should have a webcam. Here, I meant to say a deep thought. I'm so coffee. discombobulated to begin with, and now you've double discombobulated me. It's hard to say double discombobulated. Double discombobulation. You're good at it. Yeah, you look like you've had a big night out. Yes, but some Panadol and a big glass of water and <laughs> lots of coffee, and I'm ready for action. I'm just going to sit here quietly in the corner, actually. The whole... In fact, this will be the last you hear my voice, I swear. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah. We'll look after you, mate. Uh, Dr. Nick, thank you so much. Now, you hosted a show a couple of weeks ago, didn't you? Yeah, you were lounging around in Italy somewhere and so the backup team had to fly into action. And I heard it was an exemplary show and uh, you'll be going to Italy soon too. Yeah, well, on the basis that anyone who hosts this show ends up <laughs> wandering around the north of Italy for a couple of weeks, that's what we'll be doing in September. Oh, 
that's so good uh, coming in and hosting this show because you do get exposure to different to like a whole range of medical personalities and some good serious travel tips as well speaking of travel tips you've cycled around the south of europe haven't you dp i have and south north, north of europe yeah when and was the lo- south of Australia and the north of Australia. Oh. What about the east and west? Like, you just ignore them. And the east? Those. Haven't right. cycled in the west. Have you cycled around Tasmania? Yes. Because that would be hilly. You'd them, really? Yes. Wow. That'd be Ro- uh, old Roman settlement, Tasmania, the roads just go straight up the side of the mountain and straight down the other side. Oh, that's why you look so fit. Now, gentlemen, um, some serious medical news in the last week. Camel urine. A very important piece of a travel advice, this. Um, if you're going to go to the Middle East, don't drink the camel urine. That's the official Department of Foreign Affairs advice. No, um, I'm going to have to write that down because I'll forget for sure and I'll be drinking it by the that's leader. That's the first thing I do when I land yeah. in a foreign country is ask for a glass of camel juice. I've got to ring my travel agent and change my travel destination. <laughs> I, have to say, I was slightly surprised to see that this was official advice because I wasn't aware that this was in the Lonely Planet guides to what you do when you go to the Middle East. Uh, but you've also got to cook your camel meat properly because the danger is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, which is at the moment sweeping through Seoul and shutting down the city. Well, it's not actually sweeping. There have been very few cases but they're all terrified of it, of course. So what is MERS? sweeping through soul. <laughs> Very good. Sweeping through soul. Yeah. What, what, what is MERS? What actually MERS is, is a, a viral infection. So you, you probably remember SARS. We, we love these yeah. acronyms, don't we? Yeah. MERS and SARS. Um, so it's a little bit like SARS, um, which was the sudden acute respiratory syndrome, which came out of the sort of Asian countries. MERS has arisen, arisen in the Middle East, so you get the acronym MERS, yeah. Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Uh, it's caused by a virus, a coronavirus, if that makes any difference at all. Because it looks like a crown under a microscope. It looks like an ice cream. And they're pretty, pretty <laughs> common class of viruses, aren't they, yeah, Dr. That's Nair? funny. Yeah, they're, they're, they're an ordinary old group of viruses. Isn't that what causes, one of the viruses causes common colds? Yeah, so lots and lots of versions of these kind of viruses, and this particular one just happens to give you a nasty respiratory syndrome with a you know, a death rate of up to about a third of people who've had it. So it is, yeah, yeah, so it right. um, hasn't come to Australia yet, yeah. um, because no one's been drinking the camel urine, so it's safe so far. Um, but it's, has it got human-to-human spread? Like it does have human... Yeah, it's not as infectious as SARS, so it doesn't spread as easily. So, so are you trying to tell me that Seoul has camel urine bars where people <laughs> go to drink camel urine? It's very, how's it got to Seoul? It's a very popular little nighttime undercurrent life <laughs> style event that... Uh, <laughs> no, apparently the... Uh, it, it spread through one traveller to the Middle East who arrived back in South Korea, uh, went to hospital not feeling very well and coughed and sneezed over a whole stack of people, uh, and it spread... And efficiently it's affected, infected enough of them. It wasn't a single camel involved, apparently. It was just person to person. So how does... Uh, so if it is named Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, uh, but it tends to have its um, little pandemic, or its little sort of spread in Asia, why is it called Middle Eastern Respiratory? Why isn't it called Seoul Syndrome? Because it began in Saudi Arabia, so it's been lurking around in the Middle East for the last two or three years, yeah. and it's only we've only heard about it a bit more since it's come closer to our shores, and as soon as it gets a bit nearer Australia, it flaps around and starts talking about camels. And so DFAT has now put on a warning stay away from camel urine. Apparently there's an animal reservoir. The camels hold this virus, and that's where it began moving into the human population. Reservoir's called the bladder, isn't it? Oh, but surely you'd be better off staying away from people who are coughing on you. I was going to say, yeah. Camel <laughs> urine. That would have to, to I mean, say that. a billion to one, surely. They, uh, camels that are coughing. 
<laughs> yes, and have bladder problems. Just stay well away. Very strange one. Yeah, interesting. Um, Deepa, you had some interesting uh, medical news during the week. Yes, I was uh, watching Doolittle out in the green room before coming in in his terribly hungover state swallowing some analgesics, and it uh, reminded me of an article I was uh, reading last night that I bought in for catch-up mm-hmm. that's... Um, Headed, titled, Analgesics Linked to Increased Homicide Risk. So, uh... Watch out. Stay away. The, I'm loaded up. The worry in the studio is I don't have the seat closest to the door. <laughs> Rookie error. And uh, what this reports is is an interesting analysis that was done in uh, Sweden that... that um, looked at the homicide... It was a population study, and it looked at the homicide risk of people taking a couple of classes of drugs. Antidepressants, antipsychotics, benzodiazepines, which is drugs like Valium, and uh, analgesics, and that was opiate and non-opiate analgesics. So non-opiate analgesic is something like Panadol, Mm -hmm. an opiate one is something like Pethidine. Right. And what they found is that there was... In, at a population level, there was no statistically significant increase in risk with uh, antipsychotics and antidepressants, but there was for benzodiazepines and interestingly for both opiate and non-opiate analgesics. And what was the explanation for that association? The explanation is that uh, both those types of drugs, benzodiazepines and analgesics, don't uh, both act centrally and decrease impulse control. Right. So if someone's feeling homicidal, yeah. then um, if they're on an antipsychotic, they're in fact likely to become less impulsive. Mm-hmm. But if they're taking analgesics and they're taking benzodiazepines, they're likely to become more homicidal. So is it kind of like alcohol? Through, through their increased impulsiveness. <coughs> yes, like alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, and alcohol would probably be the commonest drug. That disinhibits you. That disinhibits people. And what kind of sort of odds ratio are we talking? Like he just like um, Doolittle just talked two aspirin. Does that quadruple his risk of killing me, or just increase it by uh, half a percent? It increased by by a small, a very small amount for an individual, mm. but at a population level, it increases by a statistically significant level. It was it homicidal behaviour or homicidal? It was homicide. Ideas? Homicide. Completed actually, homicide. completed homicide. Yes. I just thought. I mean, I. You know, so, I immediately so not just wanting to kill someone when you're road raging, mm. but actually killing them. I, I immediately get, um, you know, con- it's slightly. I wonder <laughs> <Angry>? about it. <laughs> Angry? No, because it's such a rare event yeah. in in and of itself. Yeah. So how do you get enough homicides in a big enough population who are on all of those drugs to measure it? They must have had, you know, they must have looked at a couple hundred thousand people. Surely, how did they do it? Or was it in the newspaper and it didn't say? So this is a, was it just a Scandinavian study? Yeah, it was a Scandinavian yeah, they, study. So, so oh, they, they do, measure do everything. Right. Yeah, they measure everything. Yeah, yeah well, well, over in fact, 20 years, in fact, uh, over a population level, that um, benzodiazepines increase the risk by 45%, which is quite significant, Ooh. even though homicide itself is a rare is event. A rare event. Now, I have to get all researchy and epidemiological about this because it sounds to me like we've got confounders mm. in here. Uh, of course we do. That yes. our drugs are just markers for something else, which is yes. what causes the homicidal tendency. Because yeah. we know perfectly well, of course, that if someone's in that category mm. that they might be taking benzodiazepines or opiates, there's probably something else going on in their life, which maybe puts them in a higher homicidal risk category to begin with. Yes, and of course that's true. And, mm. and Though I guess you, you might accept that for uh, antidepressants, antipsychotics, 
benzodiazepines. But uh, analgesics. The, the but, finding but for analgesics was was. But pain itself would be something which maybe mm, lowers the threshold. Mm. Yeah, it's not yes. true. And look at the case of the person who's in the studio this morning who's taken two Panadol. You know, it could be because you know he was out too late and drank too much. And the biggest risk factor for all of being involved in any violence, either doing or receiving violence, is being out on the street after midnight in an alcohol-intoxicated state. Not yes. that. Not that I necessarily was last night. Do you know, but one of the things that you and I the risk argue about consistently in journal clubs in front of the trainees is about... Fight. We fight. We don't argue. We, do. we, we throw fisticuffs. Yeah. It's very entertaining we for, the, uh, for the junior staff. Yeah. Ju- um, junior staff. Um, we talk about association and causation. Mm. And this is a classic example of an association it's between... association rather some, than causation. Rather than one causing another. Because as you say, Nick, um, the confounders are so extreme. And the only way to really measure this is to start off with a study where you say, I'm going to measure these two things in these populations at the start rather than retrospectively. Yeah, or maybe introduce analgesic into a community that didn't previously have it and look at their rates, etc. those sorts of things. Prospective. Yeah. Now, talking about... uh, I was talking about uh, travelling because we're all frequent travellers. We should have a radiotherapy sort of frequent flyers. Frequent cars edition. Yeah, yeah, we should, you know. Where have you been this year? Um, the Mile High edition. Well, I've, <laughs> we've all tried to convince people of the, the that, boggles. Uh, that club. Um, now, uh, gentlemen, uh, do either of you, any of you, suffer from a jet lag? When There's you fly? only one of me, actually. Well, yes. <laughs> when you fly across five, um, five time zones. Yes. Do you suffer from jet lag? Yes. Is it worse? But it depends which way I'm flying. Exactly. Which way is it worse? It's worse flying from west to east than flying from east to west. Mm-hmm. Dr Nick? Couldn't disagree more. It's always worse when you're coming home. Yes. It doesn't matter, doesn't <laughs> matter where, where you are. If you're in the UK, it's flying back to the UK. If you're in Australia, it's flying back to... If you're in Zanzibar, it's flying back to Zanzibar because it's having to come home and go back to work that causes the jet it's lag. It's always work the next day too, isn't it? Well, I, just, you know, I went to London a few weeks ago. Didn't have an ounce of problems really over there. But when I came back, it probably I was only gone a week. Less. I was gone like six and a half days. And when I came back, I couldn't sleep properly for around about five or six nights. Now, were you, yes, when you flew home, did you fly home? West to east. West to east, yeah? Well, I don't know. I was in London and I got off in Melbourne. Yeah, that's <laughs> the world spun so, underneath yeah. you, yeah? Yeah, I wasn't looking. No, I, west to east. I had a similar yeah. thing. I was just watching crappy movies on the in-flight Maybe entertainment. that was the reason why. <laughs> um, I, similar thing. When I got there, because we, we were in Europe at the same time, <laughs> not to start any rumours. <laughs> it really does sound like a trap. Show, it does look like yeah. a double show. It's not at that common event, to be honest. Um, flying there, not a problem. Flying back, massive jet lag. Just wake up in the morning at, like, you know, two in the morning and just totally awake and just could not get back to sleep. And you're right, ZP, it actually is worse flying west to east. That's when jet lag tends to be most prominent. So I did a bit of research, and when I do research, I tend to go to the principal site looking for, you know, um, uh, systematic reviews, and oh, that cosmopolitan. is cosmopolitan. <laughs> well, close the first thing. Cochrane, the Cochrane ah. collaboration, looking at uh, melatonin, which I didn't use for the prevention and treatment of jet lag. Have any of you had any experience with? Pres- yes, with- I use it regularly when I travel. Yeah? Really? So, what do you do? Um, I I use me- I adjust when I get on a plane. I adjust to the time zone that you're that, going to. That I'm going to. So you prepare as as for the time zone. As soon yeah. as I get on the plane and then I take melatonin at sleep time. Yes, it was fantastic. For the country that I'm going to. Yeah. And that helps, I hope, to retrain my body clock 
again, it seems to work better going from east to west. Yeah. I do it coming west to east, and yeah. it helps a little bit, but not as much. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Nick? Have you any experience with melatonin? Melatonin is very popular at the moment, and yeah. there's been a prescription version available for a couple of years now, because right. it used to be only available through compounding pharmacists, so it was a bit harder to get. But there's now a pill version of two milligrams of melatonin that you can prescribe. Though I think uh, you need five milligrams rather than two. Well, interesting, because this study... Well, they all debated. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, I took it recently when I came back on account of... I, I probably didn't start soon enough, though, because, you know, I hadn't slept for about one or two nights very well, so one of my mates... Prescri- well, I mean, my doctor, I went to my doctor, <laughs> and he prescribed some. Yeah, it's very, and I, you know, very official. Yeah, and I, I looked it up. There, it was a lot of debate. So everyone seemed to think you needed two tablets for... What did they say in Cochrane? Well, Cochrane, this is the... Two tablets as in four milligrams. The, this is the Herxheimer Herk, Review, which was published in 2009. The Herxheimer, did you say? Herxheimer. I love that name, Herxheimer. What a great name. Um, they reviewed... Or he, she? Andrew Herxheimer. It's a he. How did you get... You're joking. No, it's Andrew. Yeah. How do you know Andrew Her- don't you know Andrew Herxheimer? He's a very senior reviewer of these matters. <laughs> wow. I am so impressed. I had him for dinner last night. <laughs> <laughs> With a fine key ante. Yeah. <laughs> going to have the leftover tomorrow. <laughs> um, well, Andrew, buddy of Nick's, um, uh, reviewed uh, 10 trials um, using melatonin, which uh, they found acceptable. And what, what Andrew discovered was that um, between 0.5 and 5 milligram are similarly effective, except that people fall asleep faster and better after 5 rather than 0.5. Doses above five appear to be no more effective. The relative ineffectiveness of the of a two milligram slow release form, slow release form, suggests that the short lived sort of higher peak um, is what's really important. You want that high peak of melatonin, which sort of tells your body to turn to sleep. And um, they estimated the number needed to treat is two. It's amazing, isn't it? Two. Do you know what number needed to treat is? um, what's your name? Do a little bit. Go ahead and explain. <laughs> no, You're about to tell Wait a second. Um, malpractice, what do they mean by the number needed to treat? As I understand it, the number needed to treat is how many people do you need to treat to get a, an effective response in somebody? So you need to treat yep. two people to get an effective response in one. And that's an, an NNT that's of two is pretty yes. effective. You know, right. that's, that's, that's not too bad. So, um, uh, of course, there needs to be more research. The incidence of other... What's the side effects? The timing of the melatonin is important. If taken at the wrong time, like early in the day, it's liable to cause sleepiness. Well, it's interesting. When it, when, it first, about that. when it first sort of started getting popular, which was going back about 30 years, yeah, 30 I was years, working yeah. at the Austin back then, and um, the chief um, pharmacologist there, psychopharmacologist, did a lot of research in it. And back oh. then, all the debate was, when do you take it? And they argued about morning versus night, because yeah. it wasn't considered a sleeping tablet as such. It was, a resetting. It was considered something that reset. Yeah. So first they ended up deciding, yeah, you took it at night. And then there was this whole debate. And they tried doses from minuscule doses yeah. up to massive doses, yeah. trying to figure it out. It was quite interesting. And um, people were forever buying it overseas back then. So people would go over because you could buy it in various countries, sold it in health food stores, States, essentially. Yeah, and so yeah. people would always come back with their yeah. supply of melatonin. And then they wouldn't know whether to take it night, morning, how many tablets. It all looked like a lot of nonsense. So I never got around to trying it until just recently. And it did seem pretty good, I've got to say. Once I got onto it, it was like a sleeping tablet. But a couple of my mates were really keen on it. They still tend to take... They take a little bit of... Um, they, they take their melatonin at night and they also take a sleeping tablet. Oh. And that really works, mm. apparently. Mm. Well, interesting to travel the radiotherapy travel show, the melatonin review. I might have to try it next time to see what happens. Uh, gentlemen, uh, do little. You did have some medical breaking medical news uh, that you're going to bring in uh, this week, but I fear for your 
your cognitive state at the moment? Oh, I can do it quick. Can you? It's pretty easy. Okay. It's not really that breaking. It was breaking last week when I didn't get a chance to do it. I just like this. It's only a brief little story, but it, okay. it hit the newspapers, especially in Sydney, but I saw it in the Melbourne newspapers as well. And it was entitled Cheating Scandal, Sydney University to Review Medical Study Unit. And it was um, basically a story about how the medical faculty in uh, Sydney discovered a whole lot of their students. This just gave me the giggles because I thought they, but for the grace of God, found a whole lot of their students were faking patients that they'd seen. So when you're you know, going through med school, you have to at various stages do various projects and sign off, in the, sign off on the patients you saw and have these logs. And they had this um, one, uh, one study unit where they had to where the students had to follow people with chronic illness and they had to follow them for a year. For a year, yeah. Yeah. And when the school went to ring um, some of the... They rang the um, patients to say thank you for you know being so nice to our students and letting them What's see it? you. And a number of the patients had deceased some time before, and so they would, they'd made up fake um, patients. That's and, dedication. Uh, they visited the graveside oh, no. That's what I. Those, see, you know, where would we get our pathologists from if we didn't get That's those right. students? Um, well, and a of long course, history uh, of, gra- of grave robbing <laughs> in uh, medical, amongst medical students. Yeah, so well, what they, what'd they do to one, to the medical students? Um, oh, essentially, not much. I think they gave them a bit of a wrap over the over the knuckles. Because it was a, it was a rel- look, it was one of those situations where they encouraged people to cheat by setting up a very difficult parameters. Because a lot of the students saw the patients say for eight months, and then the, they had chronic illnesses, so a certain percentage right. died. Yeah. And if they did it according to the books, they would have had to go back and start all over again and delay their um, progression into whatever their exams yeah. and whatnot. So the students said, "Look, it was a silly unit. It was set up badly, etc., <clears throat> etc." Et and this made was it a newspaper? Well, it did. It made the newspaper because you know everyone loves a good scandal and. Of course, a number of people got on their Scandal. high horse. I loved one person got on his high horse, or what is it, him or her? Yeah, was it him? Got on his high horse and said, yes, this just shows that universities around Australia are putting too much emphasis on marks and money, um, and they should spend more time assessing people's ethics and personality prior to going into medical school. I'd love had to know how you do that. Ethics. How are you going to assess someone's and, ethics? And that comment was signed, Dr. Doolittle? No. <laughs> I'm the, normally the ones, you know, I mean, really, you know, people love getting on their high horse about these issues. How, what student hasn't ever cheated? a little bit, a little bit of plagiarism here, a little bit there, you know... You're looking at me like, no, never. <laughs> Remember when uh, I was at medical school, we had to do the opposite end of life and follow a, a baby. Um, yeah. yeah, we did that. A for child. You, yeah. And um, there was this big joke in uh, medical school that... Uh, Everybody used to study Baby Illingworth because that was the name of the author of the book on child. <laughs> well, it's uncovered another. You know, it's, in, it's led to a few you know ripple effects, and now there's this scandal going around about um, there's all these services these days. You know, in the old days, when in the good old days when you had to write an essay, you know, as a student, this isn't rocket science. You know, people would copy a little bit out of the textbooks, change a few words, yeah. that sort of stuff. Well, because all, every all the essays now go through these plagiarism programs, turn it in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now. So you can, it's very easy to detect plagiarism. So now they, um, there's all these services and you can Google them to get people to write your essays. So if, you know, somewhere between about 100 and 400 bucks, you can get anything from a 1,000 to 4,000 word essay written. Um, and, uh, but who's writing these essays? Because well, you must be fairly intelligent to have to write yeah, these essays. Well, so. it's interesting. Um, the 
article I read said a lot of them were being done by medical students and they were written for you know other courses and stuff. Right. Um, so the medical students liked it because they got good practice and made money and it was relatively easy for them because they were writing them for various um, health science courses, not medicine. So there are some medical students writing essays for other medical students. Yeah, and then for all but sorts of other health science. Then, but then <laughs> so everybody's writing essays for everybody else. Well, the journalist in the article, in the particular article I was reading about that story, I was mainly following the other story, but the journalist paid $400 and got an essay on something and said it was just full of grammatical errors, some factual errors. So maybe, the, I mean, so you're putting your, you know, you're putting your faith in someone you don't know, I guess. Yeah. 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 Oh, interesting stories. Fun times. Fun times. Uh, well, we're going to come back with some... How am I going to say that? We're going to come back with some knowledge. We're going to throw some knowledge at you about antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. Oh, I hope it doesn't stick. And hopefully some of it will stick. <laughs> Stay with us. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. I was just querying Dr. Doolittle's ethics in that three and a half seconds that we had. I just been I've been doing that for years. All this, what medical student hasn't cheated a bit, I'm thinking. I Did you do any? Cheat. Wait, and, and I then, didn't cheat a bit, I cheated a lot. <laughs> and, and your statement that the parameters were so difficult it encouraged people to cheat. I think well, that's a very interesting way of seeing how yeah. the world works. I think we'll delve a bit deeper into your mind at some point when it's more accessible. Two so sides. Fogged by parasitism. Two, Two sides for every coin. There are yeah. two, uh, three sides, actually. Mm. But anyway. Are they? Yeah, there are. Yeah, there's really. the rim as well. Yeah. Does people it ever land on the rim? People forget about the rim. Yeah. Uh, Nick. Which is a nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of rimming, <laughs> oh, yeah, it wasn't on so my I wasn't going to be too specific. Uh, look, you know, you'd think the, the average, I mean, the layperson would think infection, treat with antibiotics. But it's not that simple, is it? If only it were that if simple. If only it were. Yeah, it's good. good old days of penicillin being the cure for everything. Cause it, so? it did used to work. And fairly, fairly rapidly, the bugs, which are quite clever, they've been around a few million years, and they've worked out how to deal with stuff. So it only took the bugs a few years to work out how to become resistant to penicillin. So we rushed around and developed a few more antibiotics. And we had this golden age where it didn't seem to be a great problem because whatever resistance occurred, we could just find a new product that was going to um, solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so for quite a long time we thought, well, resistance wasn't going to be a problem. Science would overcome it all. Mm. Um, but we seem to have got through the the golden era of that because uh, in the last 10, 15 years we've really struggled to find new products um, which uh, the bugs can't become resistant to. And we really haven't produced anything very new mm. for a long time. Mm. Just just a question, Dr Nick. I don't really know the answer. But, but uh, penicillin of course uh, is chemical produced by the penicillin mould, yep. which also exists in the wild with all these bacteria. And surely these bacteria come across the mould previously over millions, billions perhaps of years. I wonder why they haven't developed a resistance to it already. I, I think probably the answer to that is because the, they hadn't met each other inside the one organism, either uh, the human being. So they coexisted in the wild, but they weren't competing previously so they just sort of sat alongside and avoided each other and it wasn't really too much of a concern mm. to either mm. one so it's when there's a competition that that uh that that selects the yeah. the yeah. most resistant bacteria yeah, that's, where, that's when the bugs really get themselves organized and say we don't like this anymore we don't want to be killed by this stuff what can we do yeah um and d- 
<laughs> this is an area which uh, you think maybe in little old Australia, you know, it's not really a huge problem, but we are in Australia one of the highest antibiotic prescribing nations. This is in medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the world, we, we're number two. Really? Uh, yeah. Why is yeah. that? Why are we such high prescribers of... Well, the, 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 the doctors all like to say it's these terrible patients. It's all their fault because yeah. they come in, they're not happy if they don't get a prescription, yeah. and it's all their fault because they all think that uh, antibiotics are necessary, whether you've got a cough or a cold or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's certainly true that um, something like 60% of people, when surveyed recently, still said that they thought that the right treatment for a cough or a cold um, or flu was antibiotic. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of misunderstanding understanding out in the community despite the series of educational programs I've been involved in these trying to raise awareness about where antibiotics fit uh, in the whole treatment of ordinary old respiratory infection. Uh, So just uh, tell us where do they fit? If you know, if somebody comes to you with a cold, yeah, uh, and that's actually the subject of a series of very complicated lectures. So it's one of those ones that's really hard to answer in a, in a very short space of time. But if you take the four major respiratory infections, which are sore throat, ear infection, sinuses, and chests, yeah, those are the four main. What I always say in the summary is that only the really severe ones, when people have got measurable fever, they've usually got other signs. So in the mm. chest, you've got nothing phlegm being coughed up on the throat, you've got pus on the tonsils and other indications of true tonsillitis only the really severe ones tend to be the bacterial infections and that probably it's very hard to estimate but something only 5 to 10% of these infections so something like 90% of all of the infections or more that we get a pure virus and antibiotics Mm -hmm. can do nothing so, so even if you've got a fruity cough (coughs) with a chest infection if you're not coughing phlegm up you're unlikely to benefit from uh, antibiotics. Quite correct. Nearly all bronchitis, so-called, is in fact pure viral infection, and we were talking about numbers needed to treat. Um, uh, very few of those respond to antibiotics. The numbers needed to treat for purulent, nasty, coloured phlegm um, with cough and so on is about 25. So 24 people given antibiotics get wow. no benefit for one that does. Wow. See, and this is what the thing that always cracks me up about this, and is that you know this yeah whole idea that anyone could blame the community for this because clearly there's only one person who's writing a script clearly that's the doctor who's writing them and what's more this Your was mate. one of the main things we were taught when i was at medical school even and when i was just at quietly medical we're going school. back a few decades now so um you know it, and it's always amazed me of all the big things you know when we were at medical school we were told this is a disaster mm-hmm. um people have been treating it and yeah. giving antibiotics yeah. for colds for far too long and we're gonna yeah. rub it out and these are the signs you need to look for before you give antibiotics antibiotics and you know because it's been going on 10 20 years now and now we're 30 years down the track and we've still got exactly the same problem what are we doing wrong well one of the things i believe we are doing wrong is this thing you're saying it's about blaming the patients and there was a lovely study done uh, to see whether this is true you know do do people really expect antibiotics and does that mean you have to give it to them so this somewhat unethical study was done where a guy took all uh, this was a solo gp was actually in israel uh and he decided i was going to study this he thought so he took all the patients who came with respiratory infection, he allocated them to one of two groups. One he was going to give antibiotic to and the other he wasn't, completely at random. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he gave them a simple explanation of why they were being treated with or without antibiotic. 
and he had a researcher measure, uh, assess their expectation beforehand, so he knew whether these people, prior to seeing him, he didn't know at the time of the consult, but subsequently he knew whether or not they had expected an antibiotic or wanted one. And what he was able to show was that it didn't matter what their expectations were, a simple explanation of why it was or wasn't necessary was very satisfactory for nearly everybody, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, people are not stupid. They don't go in there saying, you don't give me an antibiotic, I'm going to sue you. Mm. They go in saying, I think I need an antibiotic because I had one last time. If they get a decent explanation of why they don't, they go, oh, okay, fair enough. So if I came to you and I said, uh, Dr. Nuka, I've got bronchitis, um, look, I really, I really think I need an antibiotic, you would say... I'd say you've been jet-lagged and you need some melatonin and go and rest. <laughs> and you'd say, look, uh, the number needed to treat 25... I'd have to treat 25 people to get one person to respond to antibiotics for bronchitis, and you probably aren't going to be that one just out of odds. And one of the most important things to tell people is why it's a bad thing for them to have antibiotics when they don't need it. Why is it a bad thing for them? So this idea of community resistance never won any votes because nobody really cared whether the the people out there were going to develop resistance. If, If it might help me, I'll take them. But what we now know is that one course of antibiotic to you, yeah. Mal. Dr. Mal, yeah. um, will increase your chance of having resistance bacteria over the next six to 12 months by two to three times. Very good. Yeah. So there is a very significant individual effect from one course of antibiotics. And that's a completed course, is it? Because it'd be higher if it was an incomplete course. It, it, it's, it's any course of antibiotic, completed or not. It just encourages Exposure your personal bacteria, which may become infective to you, to become resistant. I am blown away. Yeah. So This, this is let, relatively just... new evidence. This is only something which has come up in the last few years, and it's made a huge difference to how we try and educate around antibiotic resistance because it's no longer just about the community, it's about you as an individual. So in my psychotherapeutic technique, can I repeat that back to you, what I've understood you have said, that if I have a course of antibiotics, me personally, my chances of developing antibiotic resistance in the next 6 to 12 months is 2 to 3 times higher? Correct. That is I'm gone because I'm like a cow. I put antibiotics <laughs> in all my food, everything. You know, I, I just wipe my body clean. The you know, some, people policy, for, yeah. some people go for cleansings and all this sort of stuff. And me, I just basically, you know, I'm going to have a bit of steak. You want salt and pepper on that? Nah, just a little bit of penicillin. penicillin. <laughs> hey, you know, can I be my usual cynical self and, you know, criticise doctors? Because I love criticising doctors, you guys. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm going to go the old freakonomics on why it happens, the economic explanation. My guess as to why um, antibiotics are prescribed so widely is because it's so much quicker and therefore the doctor makes a little bit more money. You can get... If you prescribe the script, if you write the script, someone comes in and says, I've got a cold, you write the script, they're going to be out there in six minutes and you've got another patient coming through the door paying the bill. Whereas if you sit back and try and explain, you've got a minimum ten minutes on your hand. Shoot me. Okay, okay. I will. Um... <laughs> Do you think there could be another possible explanation that um, as doctors we like to do things and we get satisfaction out of doing something and providing a solution to problems and it's a very convenient solution? So the reward isn't so much financial, the reward is for doctors is psychological. Do you reckon it's also about giving the patient something physical? I'm giving you a script, yes. I'm giving you some That's tablets. part of the yeah. doing and the reward, yes. Yeah. Well, sitting right in the middle of all three of you, I'm going to sit right in the middle and say, you're all right. Um, because, of course... I love when we're all right. Yeah. But there is, <laughs> hey, you're right. But there's actually research <laughs> evidence around all three points. Right. So um, <clears throat> one of the things doctors are not good about is being terribly honest in these studies and 
And, of course, very few doctors say, I give them a script because it pisses them off quickly and then I can get on to the next patient. But we know actually underlying it that is true. We also know doctors are deeply uncomfortable about not providing some sort of help. Mm. And so one of the things that we try and do when teaching doctors about this is tell them what other things they can offer. There's some sort of cowbell going on. There. <laughs> <laughs> what Doolittle is trying to attract my attention. I was, just tra- I was just trying to show you a funny text from my son who's texted me saying anything for brekkie. And I've texted back, I'm busy at the moment but there's bread, eggs, cheese, Vegemite and more. And penicillin. Do it yourself, you lazy little... Anyway, so I don't I don't know why I wanted to share that Back with you Back to the all. show. <laughs> it's so good that your head's on the job. <laughs> I don't know why my phone was making a funny noise. Sorry, back to you, Dr Nick. But it, is, but it is a very important point that doctors want to give the patient something and also patients do want to come out feeling that they've had something and we actually use script pads for practical advice so that doctors can hand out a piece of paper like a prescription mm. but on that piece of paper is a sort of tick the box about whether they should take their paracetamol and become axe murderers or whether they should just you know, go to bed and lie down or have chicken soup. So to, so to give people practical advice. I actually use a sheet a lot of the time which is around the evidence for the use of vitamin C and zinc in the treatment Uh, of virus infection. So we need to look at the non-antibiotic things that can help. Well I might just, this is a bit of a parallel track Um, I've recently Recently bought a um, what do you call it a heart Fitbit, Fitbit. Oh. yeah yeah, my, yeah and not just my heartbeat oh, it's seventy two now um, I noticed this is this all this really blew me away so my heart my resting heart rate has been like you know sixty nine seventy for for you know five days and then I think it was Friday morning it was seventy five and then on Sunday morning it was seventy five and this is a day before I got a cold. Like, it had warned me, like, it, my body was getting a cold before I consciously, you know, got the stuffy nose and the whole thing. Why am I telling you this? Because there's lots of stuff about colds and viruses and stuff that we aren't conscious of. But then when you get a bit of information about it, you go, wow, that makes sense. You know, I can use this bit of information. And so, you know, if I come to you, Dr. Nick, and you go, hey, antibiotics, NNT25, come on, Rob. Or, you know, here's a Cochrane study which shows evidence of vitamin C and zinc. Zinc and vitamin C in high doses at the start of a viral infection may be effective in reducing the length of time you have your symptoms. Exactly. I'm thinking information, good. So that's me. But then there's an also, and there's another part of me that, that is very kind of emotional and not rational when I think about colds. Because, you know, when you get a cold, you kind of, you just, you look like the guy sitting to my left. <laughs> but I'm over. Well, no, that's worse than a cold. <laughs> and you don't think entirely rationally. How do you deal with that particular part of it, Dr. Nick? When people just, I want to talk, not that I'm blaming the patient again, but I'm but saying, is, you know. But this is where information becomes yeah. so important, and that's why the information about the harms of taking antibiotics ah, are yeah, so helpful. Because while the irrational side is saying, give me something, it'll yeah. make me feel better, and of course the placebo effect, it does work, as we know. Yeah, sure, yeah. You give someone with epilepsy a placebo and they reduce their fit rate by 22%. It works for everything. Get away. I'm yeah. learning so much. Yeah. Fair yeah. I, know, I have to see the, the study. Dr. So, Nick, why can't we um, do a... Um, just a quick test to see whether they've got a bacteria. You know, we can uh, we can That's test for point. HIV in home kits. We can measure nice. everything nice. on the on the earth these days. You know, what would really satisfy me is if I went in there and they said, "Here, let's just do this quick on the spot swab of your throat." No, you've definitely got nothing in there that, a, yeah. that an antibiotic will cheat. Well, treat. Can, Why can't it, we do that? It, you can do that. You can do a rapid reagent test to look for the streptococcus that causes tonsillitis. And the reason it doesn't work is because that carriage rate in 
in healthy people of that particular bug is anywhere between 8 and 18 percent. So the presence of positive. The presence of the bacterium does not prove causation. So all of these bugs mm. that we can find there, whether it's in your sputum or in your tonsils, um, they exist in normal healthy people. I reckon streptococcus would be the least of your problems. Could <laughs> 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 you please just get your mind on the job malpractice? So we call it... Stop <laughs> looking at your Fitbit. What's your pulse now? I bet you it's gone up to 80. <laughs> looking at you. Um, so we call these things commensals. Is that right? When you've got yep. a bacteria which is yep. there, just happily hanging out, but not actually causing an infection. So Correct. doing what um, Doolittle says, nice idea, but that won't work. So, that, so to me, it's very, very simple. We know that somewhere between 60 and 70% of all respiratory consultations that go to doctors end up in a prescription for antibiotic. We think that the rate that should is probably somewhere 5 10%. So even if we halve the amount of antibiotics being dished out for respiratory infection, we'd make a huge difference and we're probably still prescribing too much. Yeah. So, Dr Nick, I come and see you and I tell you I've had this... this uh, chesty cough for three weeks and it hasn't gone. Is that more likely to be a bacterial infection? No, it's more likely to be whooping cough. Yeah. Pertussis is the commonest. Yeah. Whooping cough is the commonest cause of persistent, irritating, phlegmy cough in otherwise healthy adults. And should I take an antibiotic for that? Antibiotics in the first three weeks of whooping cough have been proven to reduce infectivity, but not the length of the illness. It makes no difference to you. It makes no benefit to the person. Your cough will continue for up to 100 days with or without antibiotics. So by the time I've come along after a couple of weeks of infection, even with the bacterial infection, with this particular one, I'm still really not going to benefit, and the community is not really going to benefit by that stage from taking an antibiotic. If we're talking whooping cough, by the time we diagnose it, which is always a few weeks, after the cough begins because that's when you start thinking about it. it's always too late for the antibiotic. So are antibiotics good for anything? I mean, I'm getting the sense that... You know. good for my hangover. I'm taking them right now. <laughs> but, this is, but this is where, as I say, there's this subgroup of people who get really sick where bacterial infection... If we talk tonsillitis, for instance, when you see someone who's got the classic four symptoms of pure sore throat with pus on their tonsils, tender glands, high fever, these people have streptococcal throat infection that is exquisitely sensitive to penicillin. Ah, good. And if you give that very small subgroup of sore throats antibiotics, most of them get better much more quickly. Beautiful. Yeah. But very, very few people with sore throats have that constellation. Yeah, yeah. And really, without that whole lot, most people are going to get no benefit from penicillin. Oh, okay. But for those who have true bacterial infection, that small subgroup, they work. They work mm. beautifully. Um, and just by the by, because this show is all about me, what do I do for my cold right now? <laughs> so, a sore throat and a runny nose. So, so this is where I'm a big, big fan of using the natural treatments of zinc and vitamin C early. Yeah, so if we possibly can, high doses of those. You can get yeah. a combined version, have the two together. Yeah. It must be in the lozenge form, not in the tablet form. Oh. Yeah, so all the evidence around zinc... <laughs> All the evidence around zinc to protect you against virus infection is you have to have the flow of zinky liquid from a lozenge over the over the respiratory oh, tissues at the back that. of the throat to prevent the virus getting a toehold in your throat. That's a bit of a metaphorical toehold. Toe no, toe the viruses don't have toes. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, so we need the lozenge form, not the tablet form. When we come to the zinc with the vitamin C, it probably makes no difference. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's cheap and it's safe, and that's the thing that I would do. Other than that, you go home and rest. Don't drink plenty of fluid. There's no evidence that you need to drink more fluid. You and are blowing me away with this And there is Fair evidence of harm if you do drink too much fluid. We've had deaths from people drinking too much. 
we've never had problems from drink, people drinking too little. So we no longer tell people to drink plenty of fluids. How so about that? drink when you're thirsty, stop drinking when you're not exactly. thirsty. Exactly. We're, we're talking water, yeah? Yeah. Yes. Um, why are you looking at... <laughs> <laughs> why are you looking at me? I'm drinking lots of water right now. I can say. But I'm putting um, vitamins in it, vitamin can, Panadol. Can you remember that, that saying, feed a fever, starve a cold? I can't even remember yes. what that... What does that mean? And we shouldn't be doing it, clearly, from what you're saying. But what does Feed a Fever Stover call? It was a wives' tale sort of thing, wasn't it? A mother's tale, whatever they were called, you know, back in the old days. Mind you, so was vitamin C. We were grew, grew up just being told to take vitamin C when you got a cold, and then for about two decades, doctors laughed at it and said, oh, you those... Well, to be fair to vitamin C, it was promulgated originally by Linus Pauling, who won two Nobel Prizes. Right. So it was a kind of reputable source. It just turned out that his research was wrong. Ah. <laughs> However, subsequent research has backed it to some extent. It's and only if it's with zinc? No, no, the, there's well. independent evidence for zinc and vitamin C. Right. Because they are cheap, they're safe, and you can combine them, chuck them in together is what I say, because it, it's not going to do you any harm. So, right. so at, very, at very worst, they're going to do nothing. Yeah. At very best, they're going to help somewhat. Exactly right. They're cheap and they're safe, so why not try? Cheap and safe. Yeah. What a fantastic segment. I've mm. learned so much about my body today. Thank you so much, Nick. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Um, you are with uh, Dr. Malpractice, which is me, Dr. Doolittle, who's recovering, uh, Dr. Nick, who is a font of information, and Dr. Deep Thought, whose name just... just oh, it's hard. It is Deep Thought. I'm not quite sure why. I keep wanting to call you 42. That's from... Um, yes, Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Doctor the Deep Doctor with all the answers, but none of the questions. Yeah. He is the Doctor with all the answers. <laughs> and, Deepa, you're going to take us through some of the complexities of being a doctor in a health service, in particular detention centres. Yes, I've just been uh, following... Uh, uh, the media recently, there's been um, quite a bit of community alarm and uh, government determination around the, go- the government's problem of what do you do with those pesky healthcare professionals in um, working in detention centres who insist on taking their concerns about uh, what's happening in detention centres into the public sphere. And in part it, it's sort of a little bit around how we deal with whistleblowers in general but from the perspective of the healthcare professional it's about what what is our duty of care and how far does that extend and uh, the example I, I was giving out in the uh, in the green room is if in my practice I hear about a child being physically or uh, sexually abused, there's actually a government mandate for me to report that. Now, I don't report that to the Herald Sun or the Age, but I do have to report it to a government department. If the government department did nothing in that situation, what would my obligation be? In the detention centre, in fact, the onus is the opposite, that if, if I have concerns that the that government policies are directly harming physically or allowing sexual abuse to occur to my patients, which might be children or adults in the detention centre, what is my obligation? Because what the government is now telling me is that from July, if reporting those uh, concerns to uh, government department results in no action, if I then go public and report that to the public, I can face up to two years' jail for taking my concerns to the public. Under what 
provision or what argument is that made? Uh, it's a threat to... We don't want anyone to know about it. Is, sure, is, I is, that, is really what it's all about. Yeah, and it's the it, Border Protection Act. It's in the name, yeah, to protect our borders. It, it, it's about control of information. Sure, but there must be some uh, legitimate reason that the government's making up making this legislation. The legitimate reason is we don't want people to know about it. There's no other reason. Really? They yes. They're not giving an explanation for it apart from... No, we don't want people to know about it. I've been a little surprised too that this hasn't got more coverage. You know, it hit the, it's hit the news a few weeks ago in particular, yeah. and it's for everyone. So anyone who works in any of these um, asylum centres and detention centres and whatnot, um, it's because it, it's the opposite of a whistleblower's act. Yes. You know? And so it's such a curb on our um, right to free speech. I'm just amazed that this hasn't... You know, it's, as I say, a little bit of coverage, but I reckon I've only read a dozen articles on it, whereas I would have thought this was front page um, sort of stuff. So it's for anyone who works there. And, of course, there's been this strong history for um, a long time now of all sorts of health care workers, of all sorts of persuasion, psychologists, nurses, doctors, who go to these centres, come back, and they've been releasing all this information yeah. about how bad they are and how traumatising they are and how many problems are going on there. And, and so our final response is to gag them. As a community, I just think it's unbelievably outrageous. I'm just so surprised it hasn't really so caused bigger waves. Yeah. And this is the sort of final step in a long process. The, the, the governments of various persuasions have set up uh, expert advisory committees of health professionals, um, representatives from the colleges of various medical specialties to advise them. But, of course, governments of both parties haven't uh, liked the advice they've been getting so they've marginalised and marginalised the committee and eventually disbanded it and this is a further step in that process that it's about then targeting individuals that release that information and threatening them with jail if the information gets in the public sphere. And so what it says, I, I, I read it about a week ago, so I don't know all the ins and outs, but it basically there's three government departments you're allowed to report your concerns to. If you, I think it was about three. There was the ombudsman, there was this, there was that. Um, so you can report your concerns about okay. detention centres yeah. to the government you're just not allowed to report it to anyone else. You're not allowed to tell your colleagues, your, co- um, your college, your, the newspapers, etc. Uh, you say this is the final step, but clearly it's not, because now, in the light of what we just discovered this week about turning back the boats, you go to the ombudsman and say, I've got these concerns, and they'll hand you a, a plastic bag with $5,000 and it to go away. What? <laughs> Are you talking about the... Are you, hey, don't tell everybody more. about that. <laughs> There'll be a queue. <laughs> I haven't heard any... Yes, there's allegations that the the government has been paying um, the boatloads of asylum seekers, paying the the captain of the boat to turn the boat around. And And I'm only being being slightly facetious about this. I mean, it is quite scary the lengths to which our elected government are going to to get their way, whether it's turning back the boats or keeping people quiet around things that are uncomfortable. There seems to be this decision that um, with these matters about border protection anything goes by hook or by crook as Abbott well, said and crook seems to be very common at the moment. They really started the whole process didn't they? When they first got into government the very first thing they did around the boats was start doing, it was just once weekly or once a mm-hmm. month um, media um, conference, a media release whereas you know, instead of answering questions on the go so there's been this very strong policy of keeping the information out of the media question I'm interested in just polling the panel and of course it's easy for us to give answers in the comfort of the uh, palatial triple R studios but but 
what is our obligation as health professionals if we're in that situation, we've taken the job, we've presumably signed a non-disclosure agreement, we've got concerns, grave concerns about things that are happening to our patients, we've reported them to our superiors, the people we report to in the job, nothing is done. What's our obligation? I would have thought the the Whistleblowers Act subsumes all of this. That you know. Well, in fact, it won't in this case. What? So you you won't have any, any other piece of legislation. You won't have any whistleblower protection. You'll go to jail because these are opposite. These two bits of legislation are opposite. But the how whistleblower. Can you have two opposite bits of legislation. I don't. Understand. I mean, I'm, I'm really naive. I don't understand how you can have that. The court will. Ch- there will be no doubt some challenge in the court, and the court will decide which one at some stage trumps, um, trumps the other one. And they'll be writing this act. You can bet your bottom dollar in such a way to, so as to make it um, defensible against the whistleblowers act. I assume. Well, so as uh, Stephen Biggs would put it, we're living in bizarro world. So, hang on, this has to pass both houses of parliament. It's got, yeah. su- it's got yeah. support of, uh, obviously, the coalition, but also support from the ALP. And the legislation will be uh, will be active from the end of this month. I'm stunned. And it puts us in this, you know, quite unusual situation because societies, you know, have a strong tradition, of course, of whistleblowing and, um, yeah. and lots of improvements based on whistleblowing. And, of course... Whistleblowing is not always good. You know, if they are genuine security threats, yeah. of course the government has yeah. to keep those secret. And this just takes it into a different realm. And I think in particular for healthcare workers, it's quite worrying. It reminds me, I went to this interesting seminar at a psychology conference about a year ago where they had this big debate about should psychologists provide services to detention centre? Yeah. And it was one of those debates on the issue of the ethics of working in potentially unethical places. And I say potentially unethical because yeah. they're not all unethical. Yeah. Um, and they had a number of psychologists who worked in the detention centres there and a number of others who were saying, look, you just shouldn't work there because you're supporting this process that's not good. And the psychologists who had gone up there, you know, argued that uh, th- there's if problems with the it, system. If we don't do it, no one will do yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. If we don't do it, no one will. But I'm really interested to see what to hear what they think, you know, now that they're not even allowed to come out and talk about it. So just more broadly, I th- my understanding is not that I've perused my contract with my hospital, that you can't... Um, that uh, The good doctors point. working for any hospital service or some hospital services have written into their contract that you can't talk about the hospital service in a negative way. Is that, that, is that right, Dilit? I mean, it doesn't say to... you're not allowed to talk about it in a negative way, but most companies right. have some sort of rule that says you're not allowed to go out and speak on behalf of that organisation okay. without the organisation's permission. But and so sp- they do potentially have the ability to gag you. However, of course, our whistleblowers um, legislation protects us if we say something that we think is in the um, best interest of the community. The, the issue, though, is is what happens when you go through the uh, normal processes and channels in the organisation you work for. It's not that you, you go straight to the public and get on the phone to the Herald Sun first time you're disgruntled about anything that's happening in the environment you're working in. But here I am trying to advocate for my patient, care for my patient. The system is actually damaging my patient. I've reported my concerns to the system. Nothing is done. What, as a clinician, do I do in that situation? Wow, this is enormously vexing. And that's if you report it to any media, not just Australian media or yes. something. So if, even if you report it yes. to the Spiegel or whatever. Yes, that's presumably if they can identify you, and presumably that wouldn't be too difficult, there wouldn't be too many people. I report- think presumably even if you report it to your college, say you ring up the College of Psychiatrists um, malpractice and yeah. say, um, ring up the Ethics Committee and say, oh, I'm concerned about what's going on in this detention centre I've just come back from. You've just well, broken the law. Because there's, there's, like, as I read it, mind you, I only read it in the paper and I tried to 
look it up online. Uh, and as I say, it was about a week ago, so I've forgotten because of my activities recently. But um, as I say, there was just three government departments listed. So you can't even, you're not even, you can't even go to your own professional organisations, which is wow. bizarre to me. Wow. Isn't there something, um, DP, you know, when you have uh, peer review groups, that is, you meet with your peers, you talk about complex situations, aren't they exempt from discovery or something? Is that right? Uh, in in uh, it's pity we don't have Lex Judicata. Oh, Lex here. Judicata yeah. is uh, in is, some si- some Where's situations. Lex yes, some situations. No. Yeah. Do you know what this is? Um this is ringing in my head. There's this old sort of radio um, law that you know you begin with the heavy and you end with the light, and we have turned radio <laughs> upside down. We've started with camel urine and we've ended with uh, gag orders on doctors and how we actually proceed with that, which is drawing us uh, to a close here on radio therapy. But that is actually stunning. Um, and I guess I, what I'd say is, if you're listening to the show and you're unhappy about it, contact your MP and let them know. Look it up Border because if they're liberal and Labor, they're both prote- they're both supporting this. I'm and just to reiterate, it's not doctors; it's everyone, Cl- any clinician, any member of the public. If you're a cleaner in a detention centre and you come back and you report it, it's a. What about if you're a reporter and you report it? Well, you wouldn't be working up there. Oh, okay, if you're working for them, oh, yes. you have to have a contract yes. for them. Yes, mm. if you're an employee and you report your concerns so, yeah. to the in the public sphere to his jail. Wow, that is absolutely astounding. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for a very, very interesting show. Dr. Deepthought, always, always incisive, always um, bringing up stuff that leaves me sort of uncomfortable for a little while longer. It percolates. Thank you so much, Dr. Nick, for treating my cold on air. I shall go out and get some lozenges now rather than just the tablets and do little... Is there anything to thank me for? Because I really just... Just for being you, mate. Thanks, man, because I didn't do much. Thank you for not impulsively killing us during the last hour. Oh, he's still seeing us for a little bit afterwards. There's still time. Yeah, day's not over, boy. And we hope you feel better. We're going to hand you over to those brilliant scientists from Einstein Gogo. Einstein Gogo, my favourite science show ever. Dr. Shane, champing at the bit. But uh, we will be back with you for some more radiotherapy next Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. So have a great weekend and keep listening. Well, you are quite simply the nicest person in the world, aren't you? So why haven't you subscribed, you miserable bastard? This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.